Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Lighthouse Bible Church on this fine, warm New England morning. Let's begin, Michigan. Let's begin by praying together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you, Father, that you have given us your word. And as we look into your word, we see our Lord and Savior on every page. We thank you, Father, that in your plan, that though mankind fell, you brought upon this world your precious son, the God-man Jesus Christ. And at the pinnacle of human history, he died on the cross for our sins and was buried. And on the third day, you raised him from the dead. And this message is the message that we have to proclaim, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we want to thank you for the privilege of that. We also pray, Father, for all the saints in need this morning. And we ask that as we gather together as one assembly, that you would have the Holy Spirit guide and direct all our goings on today. And we ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Please stand and worship with us. There's James, perfect gentleman. Let all the ladies walk in front of him. Like your tie, too. But you can come as you are. We come all ways, sizes and ages and clothing. It doesn't matter. We're all here to worship our Lord Jesus Christ. You might be wondering where our band is this morning. You know, the, well, they had a gig last night, so they couldn't be here, so they recorded all the music for us. They do that every week. I don't know how that works, but. All right. Yeah. All right. Uh, missionary organization, new month, new organization. It's Grace Prison Ministries. Keithy and Starling. www.graceprisons.org. Grace Prison Ministries works to change the lives of prisoners through evangelism and sound Bible teaching. And Keithy and Starling um, is planning to visit us in two weeks. So, yeah, that's exciting, right? Just learned that. And so that's February 16th. That's two weeks from today. He will preach. He will tell, give, you, give us all an update on his ministry. And I know one thing. In April, he is going to hold a conference at a woman's prison in Nashville. All right, so please keep that in prayer. It's not till April, but it's not too soon to pray for that, that many of those women would hear the gospel and believe that those who are believers would be built up and edified by the preaching of the word of God. So please keep that event in your prayers. Also, speaking of prayers, please continue to keep our youth group ministry in prayer. We, uh, my gosh, Dakota has done all kinds of work. Guys are telling me he's always in and out. Um, he's got a lot of enthusiasm, and we're just praying that the Lord will match that enthusiasm with young people that want to be here, want to be with one another, want to hear the word of God. So please keep that in prayer as well. Youth group meets every Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. Again, it's, it's, it's supposed to be, I guess, from ages grade 6 to 12. But if you feel like you're still in one of those ages, you're welcome too. So that may come up one of these times, though I don't know what I feel like now, but that's another story. Let's move on. We have Bibles in the back in case you need one. We know that sometimes you can't bring one or you forget to. That's no problem. We, we have them available. Just hand, stick your hand up now. We'll get one to you as we start today. The rest of us will close our eyes so that we don't know who's there. All right. All right. Again, graceprisons.org. That's the website for Keithy and Starling and Grace Prisons. 
um, ministries, www.graceprisons.org. You can find out more information about Grace Prison Ministries and uh, more information about upcoming events and uh, also what they've been. They also have a weekly mission ministry too, to the prisons, not just these events. Keep the Indian prisons two or three times a week um, so that people there can be, continue to be built up around the Word of God. All right. Today's title comes from 1 Corinthians 14, verse 22. It's a sign to unbelievers. A sign to unbelievers. We're going to see today that Paul is going to shift his attention from what tongues and prophecy have to do with believers. He's going to turn now and address the impact of those gifts on unbelievers. Okay, so that's where we're headed today. And he's going to talk about a sign that's for unbelievers. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14, we'll begin in verse 18 today. 1 Corinthians 14, 18. Anytime you want to know where we're headed, what next week's message will be about, well, in this case, where do you think you go next? Come on. No, not yet. There's a few more verses in 14. Verse 23. See that? You can, you can be ahead now and read that and see where we're headed. Yeah, for those of you that are here today that um, are here visiting us or for the first time, we do teach Bible from the original language, but we also teach it verse by verse. Now, the thing about that is that keeps us all honest, okay, especially me, because otherwise there'd be subjects I wouldn't want to bring up, like when we were in chapter 7 and the whole marriage issue and so forth. But, but sticking to verse by verse forces us to hear the complete Word of God, no matter where we are. So we are in chapter 14. Let's read, starting in verse 18. I thank God, Paul writes, I speak in tongues more than you all, to a greater degree than anybody. However, in the church, when the church is assembled, I desire to speak five words with my mind, so that I may instruct others also, rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, Yet in evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be mature. In the law, it is written, By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people. And even so, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. Prophecy is not for unbelievers, but to those who believe. So that's where we pick things up this morning. And by the way, I've been mentioning this a few times along the way, and I know it's a question a lot of people have. It's going to be answered today. At long last, we will find out when tongues ceased. And you may not be excited about that, but I sure am. And uh, it's a question a lot of people have. Have they ceased? Have they not? If they have, well, when? How do you know that from the Bible and so forth? So we're going to see all that this morning. I'd like you to turn first to 1 Corinthians 13, back up a chapter, starting in verse 8, to get the context. We've been here, but to get the context for that question about when tongues ceased. All right? We see in, verse, in chapter 13 the prediction, if you will, that they will. Notice. 1 Corinthians 13, written in the first century now, verses 8 to 10. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. 
If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Remember, we paid a lot of attention to the specific wording in here. We saw, first of all, that in verse 8, that the gift of prophecy will be what? Done away. And we saw that verb means done away by something else, an external agent. If there are tongues, on the other hand, they will cease. Different Greek word, meaning they will stop in and of themselves, by their own accord. That's different from an agent coming in and replacing it, pushing it away. It's just of their own accord, like the Energizer Bunny eventually is going to run out of juice and then stop. That was the gift of tongues. And then, of course, knowledge is just like prophecy. It will be done away by an outside force. And in verse 9, it talks about those two, not, not tongues. Notice, we know in part and we prophesy in part and tongues is missing. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Prophecy and knowledge were done away. They were replaced. They were in part, they had part of the picture, but they were done away when the perfect came. And as we've seen, that's the complete set of Paul's writings to the church. When that was completed, there was no longer a need for prophecy or the gift of knowledge in the church. But again, that leaves tongues hanging out there. What about tongues? It's not, it's not, it's not addressed here. Okay? Again, tongues was different from these two. You can see it. We already saw it this morning. That gift of tongues would simply cease of its own accord when? When its purpose had been achieved. So our job this morning is to identify what that purpose was and when it was achieved. Can you see that? That's our map. Because if we know what the purpose was, okay, and then we, we will be able to tell when that purpose was achieved. When tongues no longer had a role to play. And, and they took, tongues took themselves off the stage, not to be replaced by anything else. Just that for a time, tongues performed a function. When that function was over, then that, the tongues were no longer in play. Okay. Back to 1 Corinthians 14. Until now, 1 Corinthians 14, we've been there recently, has examined the impact of tongues and prophecy on believers in the congregation. Now that we move on, though, this next section, verses 21 to 25, consider the impact of those two gifts on unbelievers. All right? Believers and unbelievers. It's very interesting because those spiritual gifts, as we can see, they're temporary, and they had a function for believers as well as unbelievers. Okay. Now we're going to start back in verse 18 now. And the reason is, is because 18 and 19 are necessary background for where we're headed today. Particularly a couple of phrases here. So again, 1 Corinthians 14, starting in verse 18 now. Paul thanks God. I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. Paul spoke in tongues at this time to a greater degree than anybody in the church at Corinth. However... Here are the next key words. In the church. Where? In the church. When? When the church assembled. When the church was in assembly, worshiping the Lord, being built up and edified, Paul says, in that situation, I desire to speak five words with my tongue. Prophecy. Why? So that I may instruct others also. All the gifts operate in the assembly for the common good. 
Common good prophecy edifies everybody. That's why, as Paul's already said, it's superior even then to the gift of tongues. And he goes on he, to make that point clear. He says, I would rather speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also. Jesus is Lord and Savior. Five words, the power in that, for example. Rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. By the way, that Greek word for 10,000 10, is the biggest number they could think of. Right? So we would say today maybe a, a Google. Apparently that's a number right, of words in my tongue. An infinite number. I would rather speak five in prophecy than an infinite number in tongues. Well, that's something to say, isn't it? That's something to say about Paul's ministry in the church. Okay. Yet he says he does speak in tongues to a greater degree than any other saint in Corinth. I want you to keep those things in your mind. Paul speaks in tongues in a big way, but not in the church assembled. Okay. And again, the key phrase that sets our stage is in the church. In the church. I got a question for you. If he didn't speak in the church, where did he speak in tongues? Again, since Paul did not speak in tongues in the church, now you're going to see why I'm a genius right now. I had a conclusion now that nobody could figure out, and that is he had to speak them outside the church. See? Yeah, no flies on this guy. Yeah, so that's why I have this little picture in our minds. Now, here's in the church the things that are going on. Here Paul says, I want to prophesy here in the church to build up the congregation. And yet he says, I speak in tongues to a greater degree than anyone. If it's not here, it has to be here. Now I've got some icons here for your, for your viewing pleasure. There's a pagan temple. There's the meat market. We've seen those already in 1 Corinthians. And then there's a Jewish synagogue. Uh, I want, just in passing, I want you to notice which one is closest to the church. The synagogue. As a matter of fact, in Corinth at that time, you can read this in chapter 18 of Acts if you want, the church met next door to the synagogue. And oh, by the way, the two leaders of the synagogue became believers in Christ and jumped over here. So they're sitting there right next door. They've got two former leaders in here. And they, they had close contact with the congregation. That's what, just keep that in mind. We'll see why that's important. So again, since, he, since his ministry was not in tongues, in the church, it had to be outside the church. Okay. All right. Let's go forward to verse 20. 1 Corinthians 14, 20. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. Don't think like a child. In evil, be infants. When you're in the face of evil, you ought to be innocent. All right? One of the things that what that means to be innocent means to run away, not give it a hearing. So in evil, you don't have any thoughts. Okay? However, what? In your thinking, be mature. He says, I want you to go from being children in your thinking to being mature in your thinking, or in other words, once again here, and he says this so many times in his letters, he's appealing to the saints to grow up in their thinking. 
They need to grow up in their thinking before they can see what Paul's talking about with the spiritual gifts. If they're still children in their thinking, they're going to still be gaga over what seems to be more spectacular gift. Okay? But that's a childlike view of things. Why? Because in the church, that doesn't really edify. All right? Unless it's interpreted. But even if it's interpreted, it's the same thing as prophesy. Okay? He said, be mature. Mature people think about other people. All right? Let's please look at 1 Corinthians 3. Let's go back to where we've been a while ago now. 1 Corinthians 3. Verses 1 to 3. At this point, Paul's dealing with divisions in the church. Rivalries in the church. And he's going to compare that behavior, again, to children. We'll see, let's see that. 1 Corinthians 3, 1. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as the men of flesh. As who? Hello? Anybody awake out there? First Corinthians 14, 20. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. Oh, I'm sorry. First Corinthians 3, 1. I, brethren, could not speak to you, Corinthians, as the spiritual men, but as to men of flesh. When you're in the flesh, what are you? As to... Yeah, infants in Christ. He's saying, you, God, guys, the way you're behaving right now shows me that you're an infant. You're a baby when it comes to the things of spiritual things and, and Christianity and so forth. Then he goes on to make the point. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food. Now, a baby who can't eat solid food is a really young baby. At a certain point, I forget now, kids are 21 and 19, but they, they no longer just have milk, mother's milk, but they then have solid food. Okay. You were not yet able to receive the solid food. That meant that the teachings of, of Christianity, like in the book of Romans, if you want to see what solid food is, you weren't able to receive it. Even now you're not able, for you're still fleshly. So here he's comparing infants to mature people in terms of their ability to understand the word of God. Because it's one thing, when you're a child, children are always into rivalries and you know, and clicks, and who's on top, and who's on the bottom. Why are you speaking to her? She's not a, one of us, and all that. That's childlike thinking. When you grow up, you realize, especially in the church, that we're all one in Christ. There's not supposed to be any rivalries or clicks or anything like that. That's baby thinking. Be mature in your thinking. Please turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14. Even in Ephesians, he has to bring this up. I say that because Paul wrote Ephesians when he was in prison. And this is the most advanced teaching of all. His prison letters are the most advanced teaching of all. Particularly Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. Yet even among that congregation, he has to bring this up. Look at chapter 4, verse 14. As a result, we are no longer to be... Children, there it is again, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. You know what? A childish behavior, a child, someone who thinks like a child, will be done this way, tossed here and there by waves, 
carried about by every wind of doctrine. They hear one thing and they're like all out for that. They hear the opposite two weeks later, like, oh, I like that too. Right? Back and forth. Every wind of doctrine. It's easy to trick a child. All right? Crafty people with deceitful scheming. He says, no. Instead, by speaking the truth in love, the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects. It's to him who is the head, even Christ. No longer children, but growing up has to do with the word of God. Not being tossed here and there, you know, by every fad in the church. Okay, over here today, people are saying meditation in these certain circles that you can walk through. Well, that's the big new thing. Oh, I want to do that. And then over here, they say, no, what you have to do is you have to fast three times a week. Oh, okay, never mind that. No more mysticism. I'm just going to fast. Right? Or so, and then somebody else comes along and says, you're not, you're not a real Christian unless you speak in tongues. Oh, goody, I can try that out. That's childish thinking. It goes on, even today, maybe especially today. All right, back to 1 first, first Corinthians 14, verse 20. Back to 1 Corinthians 14, verse 20. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. Yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. In 1 Corinthians 14.20, Paul admonishes the saints to grow up in their thinking. Back in chapter 3, it had to do with one another and having divisions and rivalries. Here, though, he's talking about spiritual gifts. You can be childish about how you think about spiritual gifts... Children are selfish. Children are wild. The sparkly things and the the interesting things, the amusing things to them. Okay, he says, no. Not when it comes to spiritual gifts. You've got to grow up in your thinking. You've got to get to the point where you understand that, as, as Paul writes in chapter 12, they're for the common good. They're for others, not you. And when you do that, you will see that some of the non-impressive gifts, like like prophecy at the time, today it would be teaching like we have now, preaching the word, helping, that's a gift, administration, giving, you know, those are things that, for mature people, children don't want to give, they want to take. Have you ever seen children and toys, how they operate? No, that's mine, but I'll take yours, right? That's childish thinking, all right. A ch- again, a child thinks about what will amuse him. But an adult considers the impact of his words and actions on others. Both, in this case, both believers and unbelievers. That when you're thinking about the spiritual gift of prophecy, that was temporary, but today it would be the preaching of the word of God. Okay? And in comparison to a gift like tongues, which was spectacular, but really didn't build up other people because they couldn't understand anything. And then unbelievers, as we're going to see today, think about your impact on them as well. In evil be infants. Let's go to Romans 16, 19. In evil be infants. What is he talking about? How, how do you be an infant with regard to evil? And Paul tells us in Romans chapter 16, verse 19. This is what he's talking about. Romans 16, 19. What does it mean to be an infant in, your, in what is evil? 
Verse 19 in Romans 16. For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you. But I want you to be wise in what is good. See, that's mature thinking. Wise in what is good. And notice this. Innocent in what is evil. Innocent. Meaning, you know, somebody who's innocent in something, oh, they're innocent. It means they don't know anything about it. Now, that's what he wants them to be. I don't even want you to get near evil. I don't want you to touch it. I don't want you to taste it. I don't want you to do anything. Run away from it. That's what he's talking about. Be an evil, be infants. All right. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 14. We do that a lot. We go back to the main passage. Chapter 14, now verse 21. Okay, we're moving ahead. All right. Time to be excited. Can I see excited faces on people? <laughs> 1 Corinthians 14, 21. In the law. By the way, here... He's using that word as a, a shorthand for the entire Old Testament. Okay, and the law and the prophets are the two big pieces of it, and wisdom. Okay, so he's just short, shorthand. In the law it is written, by men of strange tongues, there's tongues, and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people. Who are they? And even so, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Now, what's happening here is Paul is, is, has a loose uh, uh, translation or whatever, bring a loose, uh, I think of the word, but it's a loose rendition. It's in my notes, so therefore I have the word, right? A loose rendition. In other words, it's not word for word. It's not, you know, a lot of times they say, well, it's in the, there's a Greek translation that was around at this time. It isn't exactly what that says either, or the Hebrew. That's what I mean by a loose, a loose um, rendition of it. But don't, make no mistake, this is from... The prophet Isaiah, but Paul is adopting that for the people of Corinth, okay? Because here we have strange tongues. That's the gift of tongues. The lips of strangers, okay? I will speak to this people. This people in Isaiah's time is the same as this people in Paul's time. And even so, notice, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. In other words... The gift of tongues, when it operated outside the church, okay, was speaking to this people, and they're not going to listen. So far from what tongues was in Acts chapter 2, that's when it's Pentecost, the Spirit is coming forth in a mighty way, tongues of fire are coming down upon the apostles, and then they speak in tongues as a prelude to Peter teaching. Now that day, 3,000 believed... But here, what does it say about the audience? And even so, they will not listen to me. Tongues is going to have no effect on this people, just like it had no effect on this people in Isaiah's day. So then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. I say it that way because for a sign is not in the Greek, and it messes everything up. Prophecy is not a sign. Okay? So it does it not in the Greek. So you can scratch that out or whatever you want to do. And that's important, by the way. He's distinguishing what is a sign and what is not a sign. So that was a big mistake that the translators made. I don't know why. Anyway, verse 21 again, Paul gives a loose rendition of Isaiah, prophet Isaiah. Loose rendition of Isaiah 28, verses 11 to 12. As you can probably imagine, that's where we're headed. 
So if you want to turn your Bibles, you can do that. Now as you do that, it's really time to get excited. So whatever face you had on a few minutes ago, you know, you can really get excited. I got excited. The more I saw about how this passage relates to the tongues in chapter 14, the more excited I got. The more I saw things that I'd never seen before about the meaning. Because Paul takes this and brings it right into his discussion of tongues in Corinth at that time. So he's saying, just as this, Isaiah, so now. Okay, that's what he's doing here. All right, and by the way, Isaiah explains, Isaiah 28 explains several things. It gives the answers, as we were looking for, to questions about Paul's tongues ministry outside the church. But as we'll see, it'll clear up. A lot of people say there's a contradiction between verses 21 and 22 of 1 Corinthians 14, where we are today, and the next three verses. But if, see, here's the thing. Anybody who, know, who knows that the scriptures are God-breathed, right, can never say there's a contradiction. Does that make sense? Humans can write things that are contradictory. See it all the time. All you have to do is open a newspaper and you see things that are contradictory. But not God. So whenever you see a, what you think, you know, is a contradiction or a mistake, you better look a little more because it's never one. Not in God's word. Not, not the word of God that's God-breathed, inspired by God, God the Holy Spirit. And finally, we'll see this today. Isaiah 28, 11 to 12 is the key to solving the mystery of when tongues ceased. So this is a packed, packed passage. Okay, let's read it. Isaiah 28, verses 11 to 12. Indeed, now this is Isaiah. He is speaking to the Israelites. They're in total rebellion against the Lord. They formed an alliance with Egypt because they didn't believe that the Lord would come through for them and give them rest. They said, uh-uh, Lord, we're not going to you. We're going to Egypt. Now, Egypt, if you recall from the book of Exodus, was the place where they were slaves. And they're going back to that because they didn't trust the Lord anymore. So the Lord I have a message, he says. If they're not going to listen to you, Isaiah, in their language, this is what's going to happen. Indeed, verse 11, he will speak to this people, there's that phrase, through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. We'll see what that is. He who said to them, the Lord said to them, here is rest. Give rest to the weary. I love my people Israel. I know exactly what I have to do to keep them at rest, to keep them at peace, to keep them prospering. And here is repose. Who doesn't? That's the whole purpose. In the book of Hebrews, it says the same thing to the Jewish people. God has prepared a Sabbath now, okay, for the Jewish people. All right. But then the last five words, but they would not listen. Now, of course, Isaiah was preaching to the Jewish people. So it, he's, when he says this people, he's referring to the nation of Israel. And again, Paul says, so then, as then, so now. So that phrase, this people, which he brings and he ports over, 1 Corinthians 14, he says it's the same now here that it was then. This people refers to the nation of Israel. All right. So, let's go back to 1 Corinthians 21, because they're parallel passages. Just so you see this, see this yourself. 1 Corinthians 14, 21. In the law, Isaiah, 
Okay, it is written, we just read this, right? By men of strange tongues and the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Now, in 1 Corinthians 14, 21, he's talking about tongues in his day. And he's saying, as then, so now. Now, by men of strange tongues, that's the gift of tongues, and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people. Which people? Go back. This people refers to the nation of Israel in Isaiah's day and in Paul's day. This people, and notice this, even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. The gift of tongues and its purpose in Corinth was going to be a frustrating experience for Paul. Because he, as we know from Romans chapter 9, he loved the Jewish people. He said, I would, if it were possible, I would forfeit my ticket to heaven in order for them to be saved. Because it wasn't possible. Loved them. And yet, that gift of tongues would not be very fruitful at all. Why? Because even so, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. This people, the nation of Israel, to whom the Lord speaks in foreign tongues, will not listen to him, says the Lord. Now why? Why, why would they not? Why would they get to the point... Where, and they, some of them actually knew that tongues was always to the Jewish people, and it was always a certain kind of sign. Why wouldn't they listen? Why wouldn't they pay attention? There's only one explanation. They had already hardened their hearts against the Lord. I want you to get the picture. You have Jewish people in the day of Paul. Then tongues are spoken. It's always a sign to the Jews. But because their hearts have already been hardened against the message of the Lord, in this day we'll see what that is. They won't listen to him. Paul's tongues ministry will end up in frustration. Why? Because in 1 Corinthians 21, these are Jews who refuse to even hear the message that Jesus is their Messiah. They won't have any of it. If you were to read in, 1 Corinthians, in Acts 18 about these people, you would find out that they, they erupted. And Paul said to them, I can't get through to you. I'm going to the Gentiles. They had hardened their heart. They refused to hear the message that Jesus is their Messiah. By the way, Isaiah, a prophet today, describes such people. And it's in chapter 6. Chapter 6, starting in verse 8 of Isaiah now. Of course, we're going to go back to 1 Corinthians 14. All right? So be ready for that. Pencil in there or whatever you got. Or if you're on the computer, it's just another screen, I guess, whatever that is. Isaiah 6, 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord. That's what prophets do. They hear the voice of the Lord, and then they, they, they speak it. They proclaim it to the people. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? That word us, by the way, is in the Old Testament. It says plural. The Lord is plural here. Isn't that interesting? Then I said, here am I, Isaiah said. Send me. And then the Lord said, go and tell. Verse 9. He said, go and tell this people. Who's this people? Nation of Israel. What did he tell them? Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. 
Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their eyes dull, their ears dull rather, and their eyes dim. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. This passage here in Isaiah 6, 8 to 10 is remarkable. We find it quoted, let me see, one, two, three, four, five, seven times in the New Testament. It's quoted seven. I have several, but it's seven. I counted them. See, not only can I deduce simple things, I can count to seven. So yeah, those are the qualifications for being a pastor. Not really. All right, so it's quoted several times in the New Testament. Each, pay attention to this, each time it marks a decisive turning point in God's dealings with the nation of Israel. In the Old Testament, chapter 6, okay, it's, a, it's decisive, right? The Lord says their hearts will be rendered that they cannot understand. They will listen but no longer perceive. That's a turning point in God's dealings with the nation of Israel in Isaiah's time. And every time this same passage is quoted in the New Testament, it also marks a turning point in God's dealings with the nation of Israel. I'm about to give you the passages in a moment. You see, in the New Testament, it marks times when the Jewish leadership... There were individual Jews who believed in Christ, make no mistake. But the leadership representing the nation of Israel reject Jesus as their Messiah. They do it over and over again. That's why it's quoted seven times in the New Testament. And at that point, God pronounces a judgment upon the nation of Israel. And Isaiah 6, 8 to 10 is that proclamation. All right. Where does this happen? Here's where it happens. Matthew 13, verses 14 to 15. Mark 14, 12, Luke 8, 10, John 12, 40. And by the way, you know, they call, they call Matthew, Mark, and Luke the synoptic gospels. It means that basically they're seeing things from, from the same perspective. They're not all the same. Matthew's more complete. Mark is very terse, talking about his actions. Luke describes his humanity. Why am I saying that? Because these all are the same event. I'll talk about Matthew 13 just for a second. Okay? Matthew 12, the Jewish leadership say that Jesus is performing miracles by the power of Satan. Let that sink in. What does that say about their acceptance of Jesus as their Messiah? Irrevocably, it's not going to be happening. The leadership. So that's why in chapter 13, Paul starts to, I mean Paul, Jesus starts to teach in parables. He's saying, those that have rejected me finally as their, as, my, as their Messiah, they get a parable that they can't understand. It's not exactly a foreign language, but it's similar. It's a nice story to them, but they don't get the point. But believers will understand what Jesus is saying. Okay? In John, John 12, 40 is at the very end of, the, of chapter 12 and also the very end of the proclamation that Jesus is God, okay? which is the whole purpose of that letter to the unbeliever. At that point, he ends that. No more ministry to the unbelieving Jews. And then from chapter 13 to 17, he is now preaching to the disciples, praying for his father, and it's all about the church that is coming. Decisive break at the end of chapter 12. All right? We're gonna, and by the way, I'm going I'm to skip down to Romans 10 and 11. Okay, those of you that 
I've been here and understand what, how Romans is broken up. Romans 9, 10, and 11 are about who? The nation of Israel. So it's no surprise that it's there. But I want you to turn now to Acts chapter 28. I'm going to start in verse 23. This is the last chapter of Acts. And this is what's going to happen. As you turn to Acts 28, 23, Paul will speak the words from Isaiah 8 to 10, always marking a decisive change with the Lord's dealings with Israel. Paul will speak the same passage, Isaiah 6, 8 to 10, to Jewish leaders. There we have it once again. Now in Rome, they rejected the message in Jerusalem. They rejected it all along the way because he always went to the synagogues first and they always threw him out. And now he's in Rome, the capital of the whole Roman Empire. And then once again, he speaks to the Jewish leaders in Rome after most, if not all, had rejected. As a group, they rejected it anyway. Paul's entreaty for them to believe that Jesus is their Messiah. Let's see it together. Acts 28, 23 to 28. When they had set, Paul's in prison, by the way. When they had set a day for Paul, they, these are the leading men of the Jews, came to him at his lodging in large numbers. And he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about what? The kingdom of God. That's what the Jews were looking forward to. That won't be set up until Jesus comes back in the future, even now. Trying to persuade them, solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God. And what is he doing? Trying to persuade them concerning Jesus. Okay. From where? From the law of Moses and from the prophets. You see, the, Moses and the prophets didn't know anything about the church. Didn't know anything about us being the body of Christ. Okay, But they did say that there would be a Messiah coming. And here would be the indications of that. And Paul is in Rome teaching the Jewish leaders about all of that. What happened? He did it from morning till evening. Verse 24. Some were being persuaded by the things spoken. But others would not believe. And when they did not agree with one another, they just left Paul. They began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. Here we go. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your father saying, this should look familiar, go to this people and say, you will keep on hearing but will not understand. You will keep on seeing but will not perceive. For the heart of this people nation of Israel, has become dull. With their ears, they scarcely hear. And they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and return. And I would heal them. But I want you to notice verse 28. After that, he says this. Therefore, let it be known to you, the nation of Israel, that this salvation of God, which was first offered to the nation, has now been sent to the Gentiles. That's a decisive mark in the, in the whole history of the Lord's dealing with the nation of Israel. This would be the final time that the Lord would speak directly to the Jewish nation for thousands of years. He hasn't done it yet. Okay? He will next speak directly to the Jewish people at the beginning of the tribulation. You can read about it in, in the book of Revelation. 
beginning of the tribulation period. That's a long time. That's like 2,000 years. That's how decisive this passage is in Acts chapter 28. Let's go back to our main passage for now, Isaiah. Yeah, not not 1 Corinthians yet. But Isaiah 28, verses 11 to 12. Now, what we're about to do is seeing once more this passage, understanding that Paul is now putting it in his epistle to, to, to address tongues in Corinth in the first century. What does it say again? Indeed, he will speak to this people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. He who said to them, here is rest, give rest to the weary, and here is repose. But they would not listen. Isaiah 28 is a judgment oracle. Make no mistake. This is all about judgment of the, of the nation of Israel. Okay? By the way, in Acts chapter 2, it's significant that Peter does not speak about this passage or about Isaiah 6, but he speaks from Joel. And it's all good news. It's all about the coming kingdom. And that's why 3,000 were saved, because this was... The positive message that many would have, did hear through the miracle of tongues. In any event, this is directed particularly at the leaders. He calls them scoffers, all right, priests and prophets. You know, it'd be like today, um, people walking into the halls of Congress and saying, "You guys are a bunch of scoffers." You know, I, that's bad word isn't much in use anymore, but it's bad. It's not good. All right, the priests and the prophets—they spent most of their time being drunk at that time. So you can see how effective they would be in their ministry. But these are the people that ruled in Jerusalem. They ruled the nation of Israel. The Israelites refused to heed the words of the prophet Isaiah. They called them a bunch of gibberish. But here's the thing. Isaiah spoke in Hebrew. Clear statements to understand. Like, here is rest. Give rest to the weary. Here is repose. That was spoken in Hebrew, and yet they called what Isaiah was saying a bunch of gibberish. So instead, the Lord says, fine. I gave it to you straight. You didn't want it, so guess what? I'm going to now speak to this people, the nation of Israel, through the stammering lips and the foreign tongue of the Assyrian army, which would invade Israel, destroy Jerusalem, and take them into exile. In other words, judgment and destruction. Tongues on the scene, imminent judgment and destruction of the nation of Israel. Now remember, Paul is citing this passage in Isaiah 28 of, uh, to reveal something about tongues in Paul's day. Let's go back to our main passage, 1 Corinthians 14, verses 21 to 22. Don't forget the whole context that Isaiah was speaking to a rebellious nation. The Lord finally had it because they wouldn't listen to his prophet. And he then says, fine, I will speak to you in the tongues of foreigners. Those foreigners happened to be the Assyrian army who would come and crush the nation of Israel, bring them into exile. It was, it was a warning of impending judgment and destruction. Keep that in mind. 1 Corinthians fourteen twenty one, and the Lord is written... Here it is. By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people. And even so, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. In other words, this is in Paul's day. 
There are men speaking in strange tongues. Those were the Gentiles in the church. Paul as well, speaking in strange tongues that they didn't understand. And he says, that's how I'm speaking to this people, the nation of Israel. Even so, they will not listen to me. And when the nation of Israel does not listen, does not pay attention to the sign of tongues, watch out. We just saw that in Isaiah. So then tongues are for a sign. Not to those who believe. This has nothing to do with believers, the sign of tongues. But to unbelievers. Prophecy is not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Okay. Well, let's step back for a minute. It says tongues are for a sign. Hmm. Who asks for signs? Jews do. You see how it's all connecting now? All right. First Corinthians 1.22. I just didn't have that on there. But anyway, First Corinthians 1.22 says exactly what you just knew. Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. That's why the Lord said, I will give a sign to the nation of Israel. But when Paul's in Athens, he's going day and night trying to explain in wisdom that they would understand. Make no, make no mistake, God dealt with Gentiles very differently than he dealt with Israel. All right? when, they, when they had heard Paul and others preached the gospel, they rejected it over and over again. Just read the book of Acts, you'll see it. And finally, God said, I've had enough, I'm going to speak to them in tongues. It's a sign. Tongues are never for the Gentiles, just for the Jews. Tongues appear, by the way, four times in the New Testament. And besides here in chapters 12 through 14, the other appearances are in the book of Acts. And we saw them last week, but the point is, every time tongues are spoken in the book of Acts, Jews are present. Why? Because Jews ask for a sign. Okay. By the way, there is no record of anyone, including Paul, no record of anyone preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ using tongues. No record of that. Okay. Even, even, um, even Peter. All right? Tongues were a prelude to get the attention of the Jews from every nation that had gathered in Jerusalem. But Peter preached in Hebrew. It's a common language of all the people coming from all over the world. There's no record of anyone preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ using tongues. All right. Back in where we are now, 1 Corinthians 14, 22. At least I think you're back. Paul says that tongues in Corinth have the same purpose as tongues did in Isaiah's time. That's what he means, so then. As then, so now. Tongues are for a sign. Not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. Who are they? But prophecy is not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Jews ask for signs. So when he says that those who, those who are unbelievers, they're Jewish unbelievers. What kind of Jewish unbelievers? The same kind that, that Isaiah batted his head against the wall about. Hardened ones. They had already hardened their heart against the preaching of Jesus as their Messiah. They already had hardened hearts. They will not listen to me, says the Lord. In other words, tongues are for a sign to hard-headed, hearted Jewish unbelievers who will not listen to the Lord. I hope that adds some meaning here. Tongues are for a sign to hard-hearted Jewish unbelievers who will not listen to the Lord. Prophecy is for those who believe. 
the bringing forth of the word of God will always benefit those who have ears to hear. They'll want to hear what the word of God has to say. In other words, there are two kinds of unbelievers in view here. In 1 Corinthians 14, 21 to 25. There's two kinds. Okay. You have the hardened unbelievers who do not have ears to hear. And they will have the sign of tongues. All right, as a warning. Okay. Then you have come on, unbelievers who desire to hear. See, see, someone who would come into the church, assembled, all right, would most likely be someone who at least wanted to hear what was going on. That's very different from those who remain outside. They have hardened hearts. They will, they will reject the message. And that's why they get a sign of tongues. Again, let me state it one more time. Tongues were a sign that warned Jewish unbelievers in Isaiah's day of the coming judgment and destruction. In other words, tongues are not good news. They're bad news. They're saying that there's a coming destruction of the nation of Israel. As in Isaiah's time, so in Paul's time. Tongues are also a sign that warned Jewish unbelievers of coming judgment and destruction. You might ask, what was that? What was the, in A.D. 55, when tongues were assigned to hardened hearts of Jewish unbelievers, what was the coming judgment and destruction? Well, that judgment and destruction would befall the nation of Israel in a matter of years from that point. Fifteen years, approximately. In, in, a, in a year 70 A.D., that should ring the bells of most of you. 70 AD. In 70 AD, the Roman army of Gentiles, Titus, came and destroyed the city of Jerusalem, just like the Assyrians had done in Isaiah's day. They brutally killed hundreds of thousands of Jews, and they scattered those who survived across all the nations of the world. In other words, there was a sign of destruction, tongues given to hard-hearted Jewish unbelievers. And then 15 years later, that Warning became an actual event when the nation of Israel was destroyed and their people once again sent to all the nations of the world. Now you might say, where's that in the Bible? We're always asking that question, right? Where in the Bible is that? Whitbit for short? It's a good question to ask. Well, it turns out that 70 AD fulfilled the prophecy that Jesus gave to his disciples. Maybe you didn't know that. Maybe you did, but we were about to see it. It's in Luke chapter 21, starting in verse 20. 70 A.D., when the general Titus came barreling down into Jerusalem and destroyed everything in sight, that was a fulfillment of prophecy given by the Lord Jesus Christ to his disciples in Luke chapter 21. All right, Luke 21, starting in verse 20. My gosh, we've had a trip through the Bible today, have we not? Yeah. Go to places we don't always go to either, but this is important. Okay, let's look at the prophecy that Jesus gave that would be fulfilled in 70 AD when the Roman army destroyed Jerusalem. Verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. And those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those in the country must not enter the city. Because these are days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. 
Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people, the nation of Israel. Now, you might say at that point, that sounds awfully like what Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew talking about the tribulation period. Well, that would be fine, except let's read the next two verses. Next verse. And they will fall by the edge of the sword, and here's the key, and will be led captive into all the nations. Now, at the, in the tribulation period, okay, when the armies surround Jerusalem, what happens? Jesus comes back and wipes out all their enemies. What does this say happens here? They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive into all the nations. That's not found in the book of Revelation. That's not found in the... In the this is talking about 70 A.D., Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot. All of it. Half of the city was, was destroyed in the tribulation period. All of it, whatever this is, trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. This is talking about 70 AD when Roman general Titus will wipe out Jerusalem. Gentile armies. They will be trampled underfoot and led captive into all the nations. And from there forward, Jews got to all the nations of the world. They really happened. You know, you think about uh, all the nations like Russia and Poland and Germany and France and England, all the Middle Eastern countries and so forth. Prophecy fulfilled. So tongues in Corinth were a warning sign. Imminent destruction is coming. Imminent judgment will be upon the nation of Israel. This is Corinth now, the tongue speakers in Corinth. The overwhelming majority of those who witnessed the sign of tongues in Corinth ignored the warning. They ignored it. They never stepped foot in the church to hear the good news because they had already rejected Jesus as their Messiah. They would be destroyed in A.D. 70. So you have tongues as a warning of future judgment and destruction. And then that future judgment and destruction comes. Now, once it comes, do you need tongues anymore? No, you don't. It was a warning of something, but when that something came, you don't need a warning, you know. You need to run, or whatever you're going to do. In other words, by A.D. 70, 70 A.D., the purpose of tongues had been fulfilled. Remember we saw at the beginning today, tongues will cease of their own accord when their purpose has been fulfilled. By 70 AD, the purpose of tongues had been fulfilled. We know that because the warning that tongues were giving the nation of Israel came true, all right, by, at 70 AD. Although, I, I, pay attention now because it's really before that. You know, that's the, that's the absolute last time it could possibly have been functioning. But here's the deal. Remember we saw that by the close of the book of Acts, that marked the end of God's dealings with the nation of Israel, now for 2,000 years, the end of the Lord's dealings. In other words, Acts 28, the end of it, stands as God's last words to the nation of Israel for nearly two millennia now. The Jews asked for signs. God gave them the sign of tongues from the lips of Gentiles and Paul. But with the close of Acts, God set aside Israel for a time. And when God set aside the sign people, Israel, for a time, the sign of tongues passed out of his program. Now, what does that mean? 
It means that the sign disappeared. Tongues ceased of its own accord. The Acts period ended sometime on or before A.D. 62. So, my conclusion is, is that the last time that tongues could possibly have been in operation was that. A.D. 62. Eight years later, the, the disaster would come true. By the way, if one were to put the Paul's letters in chronological order, you would reach the same conclusion. Okay? The last time tongues appears in the book of Acts is in chapter 19. By the way, that's around the same time that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. Interesting. All right, so there you have it. Tongues ceased when? Around A.D. 62. All right, when God was finished with his dealings and speaking to the nation of Israel. Then eight years later, they would be destroyed. If you put Paul's letters in chronological order, you will reach the same conclusion. The book of Romans was the last book written during the period that Acts covers. Okay. All right. Well, that's, all, that's our message for today. It's signed to unbelievers. We saw what it is. We saw what it meant. We saw when it ceased. We'll pick things up next Sunday in verse 23. So get ready for that. Yeah, the gift of tongues was a spoken language, but it was foreign, not understood by anybody in the church. Good question. All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that your word, when we bother to study it, is clear. That you give us the information we need to answer the questions that we have. And on the hearts of those who are seeking you, the question always is, I'm a savior and I need a savior. Who is it? Well, you answered that question in your word. Jesus Christ is your son and became man, the God-man. He took flesh. And in so doing, he was able to go to the cross and die in his humanity. He died a horrible death at the cross. And he did it, the Bible tells us, so that he would take all of the sins on his body in his body. He died for our sins. He was buried, and our sins were buried with him. And on the third day, he raised him from the dead. So that whoever believes in Jesus Christ, the Savior who died, was buried, and rose again on our behalf, whoever believes that, whoever believes in Christ, will never perish but have eternal life. And you will declare that person righteous in your eyes for all time. Father, that's an unbelievable gift there's no, there's no way human could ever come up with that answer. It had to be you, and it was you. And we thank you immeasurably, a Google of times, for the fact that you did that with your son. Father, we ask today that we would have opportunities to preach this good news as well. We ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. All righty. If the ushers could come forward and prepare like passing out the communion elements, and we will celebrate the Lord's Supper. So fitting at the end today. Today we started off in verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 14, where Paul said, I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church I desire to speak five words with my mind, so that I may instruct others also, rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. 
when the church assembled, Paul desired to speak five words with his mind so that he could teach others. Rather than speak in a tongue that none of them understood. We know some of the words that he spoke to that Corinthian church because we have the letters that Paul wrote to them. And though he taught many things, he always brought it back to what really mattered above all else. In chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, he said, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Right back to the cross. That's why we're here celebrating the Lord's Supper today. Bringing to remembrance his death. Paul always came back to that. In chapter 15, he said to them, listen, I'm going to preach the gospel. I'm going to tell you what it is. And he says, I delivered to you as of first importance. It's first. It's always where he comes back. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. He always came back to the gospel, to the death and resurrection of Christ. And he was single-minded about that. In 1 Corinthians 1, 17-18, he said, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ, there it is again, the death of Christ, would not be made void. For the word of the cross, that was Paul's message. That's what he was single-minded about. He says, foolishness to those who are perishing, unbelievers that are hard-hearted, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It was so in the first century, it's so today. The word of the cross is the power of God to us who are being saved. And Paul was unyielding in pursuing his mission to preach that gospel. We started in chapter 9. He said, if others share the right over you, he's talking about, again, the church supporting him. Do we not more as apostles? Nevertheless, we did not use this right. Why? We endure all that we do so that we would never cause a hindrance to what? The gospel of Christ. That was always the thing that was on his mind, that he was focused on. It was always primary. He said, I'll do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker in it. In Ephesians 6, he said, pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to do what? To make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Always, always, always. And then in Acts 20, he said this, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to itself, to myself. No account. My, my physical life. Why? So that I may finish my course. And the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus. And what was that? To testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. That's what we do. We're going to see in a minute. He says that we, we proclaim the Lord's death in the Lord's Supper. Proclaim his death. Why? Because that's what Paul did. It was primary. It's the thing above all else that we had to preach. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the good news. All right, let's see it in 1 Corinthians 11. Starting in verse 23, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In other words, we follow along in the path that Paul made for us to preach the gospel with boldness, proclaiming the Lord's death. This gathering together is that, by the way. Our eating the bread and drinking the cup proclaims the Lord's death. He does it here, and then it does it to those who are watching on the internet today. Okay? If anyone were to come in, and for the first time, they would see us doing that, and hopefully they listened a little bit to understand that we are proclaiming the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, who died for your sins and was raised by the Father. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. All right, let's close in prayer, Father. We're um, amazed and humbled by your son, what he did for us, that every time we commit a sin, we just remember that he died for those sins, that our sins he took in his body on the cross And they were buried with him as far as the east is from the west. That's how far you separated us from our sins. And we thank you also, Father, that we know the moment we believe in Christ, that we'll always be with you, that we'll have eternal life with you, and that you have declared us to be righteous in your eyes, regardless of how we see ourselves, the mistakes we make, the sins we commit. You knew all about it, and you saved us anyway, and you declared us righteous when we believed. We thank you for all that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, a couple of reminders as we're leaving today. Next, this Thursday, we always have our Bible studies on Thursday at 7 o'clock. All right, Thursday, January, February. Thank gosh. That's the old one. Ah, here's the new one. I don't know why I had both of these out. Just to confuse myself, of course. Yeah, Thursday, February 6th. That's this Thursday, 7 o'clock. We pray together on Thursdays, okay? So if you have anything you want us to pray for as a group, okay, you can submit it. Either there's a box in the back for that purpose. You can write it. You can also go on our website, www.lbible.org. On the first page, there's a button. I don't know what you call it, but it's a thing you can click on. It takes you to a place where you can type in your prayer request. Okay. If you have any questions today, about the message today, about the gospel, or anything else in the Bible. Um, I will be standing here for a while. I invite you to speak with me. We'll keep it as private as we can if we need to. But I I just want to be available in case you have anything you want to know about or concerns you. Father, we thank you again for gathering the saints today. We thank you for the fact that we're the body of Christ. We thank you too, Father, that when we were dead in our sins, you made us alive together with Christ. And we know for all the ages to come, you will continue to treat us in grace. And that's amazing. We ask, thank you for that. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Spirit, amen. All right, you're dismissed. Okay, I'm going to say this once. Go, you fill in the blank. I don't know if you want Kansas City or San Francisco. I'm not getting into it. Never want anything that will divide the congregation.